on the ice, maybe with an exception or two, but if you slip on the ice this morning, that's your fault. If you stub your toe on one of those big rocks out there, you can blame Jonathan. <laughs> um, now we got together and spread a little sand yesterday, and uh, for those who are here, man, we had an awesome men's breakfast, what, 26, 27 guys, and 32? <clears throat> I wasn't good at math, so thanks, Les. Um, 32 guys, and uh, not a single car ran into another getting in the icy parking lot, and uh, sometimes that's just the way the weather is around here, but uh, praise the Lord, no accidents and no uh, major uh, wipeouts, and I say that saying, be careful as you leave, um, although I would say once we're all here, then we have quite a few different medical personnel on in the audience, so if somebody wipes out, we, we're well covered. All right, enough of that. I want to say something uh, that I'd mentioned either last week or the week before. Um, I actually found one of these, and I don't know if we have, do we have more of these? Chronological Bibles, David? I don't think we do, but man, you can definitely order them. But even if you don't want to order them for free, what you can do is listen to it on your phone. So we have a group, um, part of our family is, uh, is engaged in, an, uh, we're all listening to it, the audio version, and you can listen to it in different translations uh, if you want to. But the one-year chronological Bible, I've read the Bible a ton, but I've never read it chronologically. So that's one of my, one of my things for this year that, uh, that we're going to, embrace um if you do, if you want one of those bibles and you don't either have access or whatever uh we will help you get one one way or the other even if we need to order them uh, we love to buy bibles and lo- we love to give them away so don't feel bashful about uh, saying something to me or one of the other leaders we don't have any more so we have one right here and uh, if you have you version on your phone you version bible app on your phone you have it in a myriad of translations so uh, i would encourage you it's not too late it's only day eight today, right? And so literally, you, oh, I'm a day off. There's that math again. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, we won't go there. (laughs) Uh, But you can literally listen to it on your way to work. Like you can usually get a day's worth of listening in on your way if you're driving to work, if you work in Colville, Chewila, wherever. Uh, You can usually listen to it. It doesn't really, it, it, it clicks along pretty good. And uh, if you have the opportunity to do that or even sit down and listen to it and follow along in your own Bible, uh, better yet. All right, we've been, um, we've been studying through and preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we got, last week, we dove right into the love chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. And there was a couple of things there in the beginning, and I won't recount the whole thing, but I'll just... If you weren't here, I'll just give you a little context for where Paul ends up at the last few verses of this chapter, because we got most of the way through. He says a couple of things. One, he says early on that you can have the greatest spiritual experiences and expressions. You can have all of this uh, giftedness, prophecy, tongues, you name it. You can have all these miraculous things happen, but without love, it doesn't matter. Without love, it doesn't matter. So you can go to these high, high spiritual uh, places and experiences. A lot of people out there searching for that. They want to ride that spiritual high. The reality is we all know that life is more of a uh, up and down roller coaster. And, uh, and Paul says without love, you can, you can do all of that, but simply without love, it's nothing. 
Or you can go on the other extreme. You can just empty yourself all the way. You can have the greatest in experience, uh, the greatest self-sacrifice, the greatest self-denial, give everything you have, even give yourself as a martyr for Christ. And without love, it doesn't matter. Without love, it's nothing, he says. It doesn't profit us a thing. See, love in and of itself is God's great motivation. He wants us to be motivated by love because He's motivated by love. And love is actionable. It's not just words, but it's expressed in our actions. And love then becomes our relational motivation as we follow Christ. That's God's plan for the ages. That's God's plan all the way through. We see it from page one to the last page, even in the difficult things, even in the judgments, even in the difficult things that happen in the Old Testament, the wars, the famines, all of that, even in the New Testament, the martyrdom that happened to the first century believers, uh, the things that will come to pass that we see in the book of Revelation, all of those things, as even horrific as some of them may be, really are still motivated uh, by God through love. And His plan for His people is that they would be motivated by love as well. Even for enemies, Jesus says in Matthew 5, He says, we can love and bless even those who persecute you, even those who, that, that come against you, and you will face persecution. You will. If you're a Christ follower, you will face pushback against your faith. Not against your political party, that doesn't count as much. Not against your gender, not against your nationality, any of that doesn't matter, comparatively speaking, to the pushback that Christ followers will experience against them following Christ. That's the enemy's bullseye, is you following Jesus. It's what we know about the Lord. We talked about that yesterday morning in men's breakfast. That's the important thing. You following Christ, that will be the enemy's target. But guess what? We can still love our enemies. Jesus says that in Matthew 5. I just throw that reference out there. You can read it for yourself. We can not only love them, we can bless them. We can be a blessing to those who persecute us. And love is even expressed, really. Uh, this is kind of a new thing that I've been kind of studying through and listening to. Love is even expressed, really, in following the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to go through them really quick. In case you were wondering, well, how does love enter into the Ten Commandments? I'll go through them quick. No other gods. I have them kind of somewhat abbreviated for the sake of time and, and uh, getting on to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Have no other gods. Love cannot be inconsistent. It must be single-minded. So we're called to have no other gods before God. No other small g gods, it doesn't matter. They have to be put away, they have to be renounced. We, we come to faith in Christ, we renounce our old life, all that goes with it, and all that we worship prior to that. All that we held up was something, some sort of deity. Love cannot be inconsistent. It must be single-minded. No idols, similar to no idols. Love must be loyal or take in the Lord's name in vain. Love must be respectful. Love is respectful in its nature. So you can't use the, names, the, the Lord's name in vain in a flippant and, or flagrant way and, and that be respectful to God. No, love is respectful to the Creator. So he says, don't use my name in vain. Be loving. Be loving. 
Remember the Sabbath. Love must be devoted with its affections. We can't serve two masters, Jesus says. So love must be devoted with its affections. We have to take a break. We have to remember to take a break on a regular basis. Honor the father and mother. Love must be submitted to legit authority. Kids, that's your role right now, is to honor your parents. And that's being loving when we submit, when you submit to their legit authority, right? So we honor father and mother. Caveat there, we'll throw in grandpa and grandma as well. We don't murder. Lord says don't murder one another. Love values other people straightforwardly. We don't commit adultery. Love is pure, undefiled, and committed. It's committed. So love doesn't do these things by its nature, by its career, because that's who God is. God is love. We'll get into that in a minute. We don't steal, Ten Commandments say. Love is not selfish in taking others, taking from others. Don't bear false witness. Love is truthful in all things. You kind of notice the parallel between these descriptions as we lay them out this way and what we went through last week in the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 13. The last one is, is don't covet. Love must be content with what you have. So the question on the table that came to my mind, and maybe it's on your mind, is how do we know that we're actually rightly being motivated by love? How do we know that we're being motivated by God's love? Is it this kind of tingling feeling that we get? We get a little, you get a little goosebump? Is that, is that it? You know, it, Maybe, maybe not. I mean, is that the measure? Is it a whispery voice, you know, that we hear? Well, <clears throat> you know, that might be your mom waking you up in the morning. Uh, is it intuition? Is motiv- being ma- motivated by love, is it intuition? Uh, is it fearful? Are we fearful that we'll somehow make some mistake so, we, so we're constantly trying to cross-check and double-check and, you know, make sure... Uh, I want to put out these verses to kind of tee up 1 Corinthians 13, the last few verses of 1 Corinthians 13, on how we know a good place to start anyway in being motivated by love. Psalm chapter 139 and just a couple of verses says this in verse 23. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 39, there's a few keys here in being rightly motivated by God's love and, and a little self-examination. One is, is that we see here in Psalm 139 that we're to live an open-handed life before God. We're to, we're to live an open-handed life. There's certain things, I suppose, that we should clinch onto and, and not let go. I get that. But we're to be flexible. I talked about this a few weeks ago. We're to be kind of light on our toes as, as Christ followers. We're to be portable. We're to be packed and ready to go if God says, hey, I need you to go do this, then we go and we do. We don't stand around and, you know, the time for preparation is all the time so that when the time to go comes, you can go now. So we're to live this kind of open-handed life, as it were. Search me and try me. He's opening his heart before God, says, know me, know me, know my heart, try me. So it's this idea of being open-handed and being tested by God. Know my anxieties. It's a statement of a great relationship between the writer and the Heavenly Father. The second one is to live a relational life with God. Be missional. 
His mission becomes our mission as we become Christ followers. The things that are important to God, the things that God is all about, the, God's ways become our ways, the things that are important to Him, they become important to us. They, should, they dominate our thinking. And, and, and I'll throw in this little thought here that I've been having is, too much of Christianity just brings God into a portion of the equation of a person's life and doesn't take over a person's life. So they just want to add this component, this eternal component. I want to make sure that I'm going to go to heaven, but I really don't want God to control everything in my life. And God doesn't work that way. He comes in to take over. He comes in to bring a completely uh, overhaul a complete overhaul to our lives and to create a whole new life then we live relationally with God and the things that are important to Him. His mission becomes our mission in life. Live a tested life that's open to correction. Search me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me, the psalmist says. So wide open to be tested before God and then he moves into that correction by saying, and lead me in the way everlasting. So we can live a steerable life as well, controlled by God. Controlled by God to his ends. Because sometimes even when we think that we're being controlled by God, we still have a plan out there that says, well, I'm going to get from here to there. And then God, however you want to do in the middle, but once we're there, then I'll take back over control of the steering wheel of my life. And we'll all be good to go. And you'll be served. And secretly we say to ourselves, and I'll be served. No, we're st we need to be living a steerable life to God's ends, which means he stays in control. The centerpiece statement back in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says about love, so these are just a few keys, Psalm 30, 139, a few keys on how we can uh, kind of... Uh, analyze ourselves in a sense that are we living a life that's motivated by love i believe if we do these things and and there's probably many more a few things other things came that aren't in my notes a few ways to analyze if we're living by love and being motivated by love i think these things here in psalm 30 139 will will compel you into that mindset and that understanding and the operation of being motivated by love when you walk out 139, and I've just given you a few cliff notes here. Nothing too exhaustive. The centerpiece in 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul's statement in verse 8, where Paul says this about love after all the explanation that we had last week. And if you weren't here last week, you can go online and listen to it. But all the explanation, all the descriptions of what love is, what love isn't, then he comes back and gives us five more of what love is. Then he says this, and this is the center of the whole chapter, is love never fails. True love never fails. And you're thinking like maybe I've been thinking, well, I, I know that I, I fail all the time. How, 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 do we, how, do we, how do we reconcile this? How do we figure out what's what? How do we have a handle on it? Love never fails. The reason why Paul says that is because love is permanent. Love is permanent, and by contrast to the spiritual gifts that he talked about in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, they're temporary. They're temporary. They're for a time and a season. They're for a place and a purpose. While we're here, they're in play. 
but they're temporary, and we can't forget that. By contrast, love never fails. True love, agape love that Paul's writing about, is permanent, it's solid, it's stable, it's trustworthy. Love never fails. Love never has a bad day. Love never drops out. Love never disappoints. Why? Why does it never fail? Because God is love, 1 John 4, 7. God is love. And also, God is eternal, 1 John 1, 1 through 3. By contrast, and, and <clears throat> Paul makes these statements to draw out this contrast between love and the gifts, only a, not that it should be one or the other. He's saying that we should have both. But he's bringing out this explanation of where he's going. When he says the gifts are temporary, they're for a time and a season, it goes on to say in verse 8, but whether there's prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they're going to cease. Whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. See, there's a lot of discussion about this uh, phrase, when that which is perfect has come. A lot of discussion over the centuries, really, that circles around that phrase. And, and <clears throat> I'll bring out a, just a couple of ideas that, are, that have been uh, floated around. Some people over the centuries believe that that refers to the end of the apostolic age, so that when the apostles all passed on, ending with John, wrote the book of Revelation, when, when John passed on, then that which is perfect was, then that was the end of that which was perfect. Some people believe that it refers to the completion of the New Testament and then the complete canon of the Word of God. Some people would hold to that view. Uh, but here's what's in interesting. Virtually everyone agrees. Virtually everyone agrees that the phrase that which is perfect is fulfilled when we're in, eternal, in the eternal presence of the perfect one. When we're with the Lord forever. That's what virtually everybody would say. Well, yeah, that's true. So there might be some, some parsing out and people have probably written their doctoral thesis on the other two explanations. I have a tendency to go with the third one. The fact that that which is perfect and there's no one perfect but Christ that's ever walked this earth anyway. The contrast between the temporary nature of the spiritual gifts and the eternal environment of heaven uh, is this. It's, it's, the eternal environment of heaven is perfect. So that's when that perfection component comes in. We won't need the spiritual gifts in heaven. And here's why. Paul goes on to say, he uses this illustration. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I, sh <clears throat> I shall know just as I am known. Childish things are appropriate for children, and the, the gifts are appropriate for us at this present time. That's why each and every one of us should be seeking the Lord. We should be having discussions with one another. We should be seeking out advice from, from uh, believers that got a lot more uh, age on them than ourselves and saying, what, what do you see? Or, Father, what do you see in prayer? What do you see? What, how, how do you want to use me how do you want to use me in this life? What gifts are, is it that you have for me that you want to use me to edify the church, to build up the church, to encourage other believers? 
The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not going to be appropriate forever, as I mentioned earlier. Paul's not trying to say that if we're a spiritually mature, we will not need the gifts. That's not essentially what he's saying. But he does say that if we're spiritually mature, we will not overemphasize the gifts, especially at the expense, and this is the whole point of chapter 13, especially at the expense of being loving. Loving should be out on the front bumper of our lives. Loving should be, should be way out there in front so, that, so there's no mistake about our character. There's no mistake about our motivation and the gifts and whatever God does and however he gifts you, whatever spiritual, you know, uh, supernatural endowments he gives to you to edify the church should come in behind that. It's not that they should be absent either. A lot of times, unfortunately, there's a lot of expression of supernatural gifts that do more damage because they come across unloving. We cannot emphasize the gifts at the expense of love. They need to go hand in hand. All the greatness of these supernatural gifts are childish compared to being uh, face-to-face with Jesus, though. And when we can fully see Jesus, and not as in a poorly reflected image, as he said here earlier, not, we said glass dimly, kind of looking. Anybody ever held up a Coke bottle? Tried to look through? Like everything looks really weird. That's the glass dimly. You're seeing a little bit, you know, and you're, you're kind of waving or trying to get a focus. And wow, Kirby's head's way bigger than it. Yep, it's way bigger when that Coke bottle's up, right? You guys know what I'm saying. It, everything looks really weird. It's opaque. It's, it's bizarre. That's the idea. We see a little bit on this side. But there's going to come a day when you're going to see perfectly. When you're going to have perfect vision. We've been razzing poor Mary in all holiday season about her, her eyesight and her surgeries and the this and the that. And, and it's better, right? Tell me it's better. Before I go forward, tell me it's better. It's better. I'm just going to say it's better. But guess what? You're going to see perfectly one day. And you're going to be known just as you are known. That's crazy. I, I can't even fathom that thought. That we're going to have that type of understanding. That type of, of, of vision and, and see as the Lord sees and to know as the Lord knows or whatever that comes to, whatever, I don't even know how to quantify it. In the meantime, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit is what He's given us to, to edify one another, to build up the church, to encourage one another to encourage those who aren't believers. It's not just about us as, as though we're ingrown in that way. It's to encourage everybody around. But what a day. What a day when those gifts won't be needed and they'll be overshadowed with the immediate presence of Christ. What a day. What a day we will see clearly. We'll see face to face. And at that time, at that point, our hopes will have already come true. When we're in the presence of Jesus, where every bad thing becomes untrue, where every, every tear, the Word says, is wiped away, every, every pain, every anguish, every disappointment, every sin that's happened, that'll all be flushed away in the presence of Christ. 
It'll all be gone. And he goes on to say in the last verse, verse 13, and now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. It's not a competition amongst the three. It's not a race, a, a race to see which one is the fastest or the strongest, faith, hope, or love. Not at all. It's not a competition or a choice between the three. The reality is, <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit through Paul is simply saying to the Corinthians, and I believe to us, that without love, nothing else matters. Love is the attitude and the actions that the believers on earth are called to live because love is the attribute that everyone in heaven, the attribute that everyone in heaven will and will have and it's what they'll be displaying all the time and it's what you will be displaying if you're a Christ follower. It's what you'll be displaying in heaven. It's what those who have gone before us are displaying in heaven. You read the book of Revelation. Everything of you see that's going on in heaven around the throne of the Almighty is all loving. That's what worship is. Worship is simply just expressing love to the Father. That's what's going on right now. That's why when we join together to sing, we, in a sense, join this massive course, massive spiritual beings that are worshiping the Lord all the time. Love is the greatest because it continues and even grows in the eternal state. And when we're in heaven, faith and hope will have fulfilled their purpose. That's why love is the greatest of the three. It's not that faith and hope aren't necessary. They're necessary for now. But when you're face to face with Jesus, you, faith has gone away. You're seeing and you're experiencing in real time. In person. So faith is then no more because it's, it's real, it's tangible, it's right in front of you. And same with hope. We won't have to hope for what's to be because we will be right there. So faith and hope even, in a sense, fade away. But love then becomes the one that stands out. And I could say it's not a competition. We need faith and hope and love for today, for sure. We need the gifts for today, for sure. But it's love is the one that stands out that never changes. In fact, I would venture to say that it even grows. If the worship team will come on up. So we close. I just want to share these uh, three verses out of First Thessalonians. Listen to the wonderful words of gratitude, faith, hope, and love is inserted into this that Paul <coughs> has for the church there in Thessalonica. It's an inspiring picture of the church loving God and loving one another. That's really the summary. That's Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments is simply to love God and love one another. But look at how the Apostle Paul threads in these same three attributes. He says, we give, thanks <clears throat> we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God and Father, knowing, <clears throat> knowing beloved brethren, your election by God. 
See, faith, hope, and love work together in a sense like, like cogs on a gear. They work together, but there will be a time where just one of them is going to stand out and continue on, and that's love because that's the motivation. That's God's motivation. He wants us to have that same motivation in, in dealing with one another, uh, in living this life. It's not just for the wedding venue. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is for the everyday venue. That's how it has to be seen. That's how it has to be embraced. And that's how it has to be lived out. Let us love one another well as Christ's followers. Let us love one another well. Would you stand and worship with us?